A short time ago, in August of 2018, an airport employee with no known flight experience hijacked an empty plane in Seattle, flew around for an hour, executed some complicated maneuvers, apologized for what he'd done, and then eventually crashed to his death. This event happened very recently, and it took the news by storm for a few days, but you probably don't remember the man's name. The end of a life usually marks the end of a story. No one can live forever, but sometimes people find a way to let their name and their story live on far longer than they ever could. You can be a beloved president who had his life taken too soon like JFK, a great innovator like Steve Jobs, a once-in-a-lifetime leader like Martin Luther King, a genius like Albert Einstein, a legendary performer like Michael Jackson, or a great artist like Van Gogh. Immortalizing your name takes a lifetime of dedication to your cause, even giving your life for your cause. It's an exclusive club. So for someone to enter into this club with just a day's worth of work is pretty astounding. There's another guy who hijacked a plane close to Seattle, D.B. Cooper, nearly 50 years ago. The documentaries, books, and celebrations dedicated to his actions ensure that his name lives on, even if we're not exactly sure that he did. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for, sometimes because of what they did and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. On the eve of Thanksgiving in 1971, Dan Cooper, wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase, walks into a Portland airport and buys a one-way ticket to Seattle for $20. Because this is a domestic flight in 1971, he isn't required to show ID or go through any security checks before boarding the plane. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper hands the flight attendant an envelope. Thinking he's flirting, she doesn't open it right away, but he continues to stare at her. Inside the envelope is a note that says, I have a bomb here. I would like you to sit by me. She calls over the second flight attendant and Cooper opens a briefcase and shows what appears to be a bomb. He promises to detonate the bomb unless his demands are met. He wants $200,000, the equivalent of $1.3 million today, along with two front parachutes and two back parachutes. In exchange, he'll allow the passengers to leave the plane when it lands in Seattle, only requiring the flight crew to stay. When the plane lands, the money and parachutes are brought on board, and the passengers are allowed off the plane as promised. They never even knew the plane had been hijacked. The first flight attendant who dealt with Cooper was also allowed off the plane, and she would later say that he was calm, polite, and surprisingly nice. The plane is then refueled, and the second flight attendant, pilot, and co-pilot remain on the plane as it takes off to his next destination. Cooper wants them to fly directly to Mexico City, but the plane doesn't hold enough fuel for a trip that far, so they'll have to stop in Reno to refuel. Additional instructions are given to fly to reduce speed and at an altitude of under 10,000 feet, with the landing gear and flaps down, further reducing the plane's speed. The flight attendant is ordered to go into the cockpit with the pilots for the duration of the flight. Cooper jumping from the plane isn't really considered a serious possibility. FBI has already alerted law enforcement to set up in Reno and wait. Just in case, there are two Air Force jets trailing the plane, but these jets can't safely fly at such a low speed, so they're forced to circle the plane, flying way out in front of it, then turning around and coming back up behind it, only to pass it again. At some point, while the plane was out of sight, Cooper puts on a front and back parachute, rips out the contents of a third parachute, stuffs the money inside, straps it to his chest, lowers the plane's rear exit stairs, and jumps. And depending on who you ask... 
He was never seen or heard from again. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plain briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, but the hijacker had given detailed flight instructions. The crew, here being debriefed by the FBI, was told to fly low over Oregon's flatlands with the flaps down. The speed dropped to 200 miles per hour. Somewhere, the hijacker parachuted away with the money. Snow covers the mountains in northern California and Nevada, a hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still looking in four states, even around the airport. Authorities began their search here, thinking the hijacker may have jumped off at the end of the runway as the plane touched down. But the problem is more complex. A daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. So, here's what we know about Cooper, and it's not much. He was white, in his 30s or 40s, and about 5'10", 170 pounds. He left a tie and a tie clip on the plane. The tie clip was clipped on from the left side, so maybe he was left-handed. Even though he used the name Dan Cooper to purchase his ticket, a man from Oregon named D.B. Cooper was taken in for questioning shortly after the hijacking because of his name and close proximity to the crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a reporter confused his name with the name the hijacker gave, and because D.B. Cooper is much catchier than Dan Cooper, the name stuck. Instead of referring to the ransom as money or dollars, Cooper used the phrase negotiable American currency, a phrase that's never used by Americans. But he spoke without an accent, so investigators believed he could possibly be Canadian. Adding to this theory is the fact that he took his alias from a comic book series where a man named Dan Cooper was a Canadian Air Force pilot whose stunts typically involved planes and parachuting. And that's pretty much the extent of what we know about the hijacker. Because the plane was set to autopilot during the flight to Reno, authorities were able to map out the exact flight path and it allowed them to identify probable landing areas for Cooper. In the days, months, and years following the hijacking, authorities and volunteer groups have conducted searches spanning hundreds of miles across the Northwest Wilderness. Nothing significant was ever found. The FBI had a list of serial numbers for the ransom money. This list was distributed to law enforcement around the country as well as banks, casinos, and other businesses that deal with large cash transactions. Nine years after the hijacking, $5,800 of the ransom money was found by a young boy and his dad, buried along the banks of the Columbia River in Washington. It was in bad shape, but it was still wrapped in rubber bands. What was puzzling to law enforcement was that it was about 20 miles from the flight path, making it pretty impossible for it to have landed there on its own. And based on the scientific data, it had only been buried there for about six years. The FBI maintained an open investigation for 45 years after the hijacking, officially ending the investigation in 2016. No significant progress has ever been made in identifying the man they call D.B. Cooper. At the time of the hijacking, the world wasn't like it is today. Media coverage of an event took days to build up. It took time to get information to the public. A tweet couldn't be sent out to reach millions of people in a matter of minutes. There was no such thing as a story going viral. So on that day and the days following it, many of the people in the area and around the world had no idea what had taken place. 
Helicopters were sent out for searches and law enforcement agents were sent to cities along the flight path, thinking that if Cooper landed in the mountains, he'd wander into the closest city, exhausted with a bag of money draped over his shoulder. He'd be hard to miss and they expected to find him quickly. One of the cities of interest was Ariel, Washington. There was a bar there where patrons mentioned seeing a guy walking along the road that night, a guy that seemed to come out of nowhere, and he was walking on a cold and rainy night wearing clothes that weren't really appropriate for a man traveling by foot through the wilderness. The sighting became the first of many theories. The main intrigue with this story is the polarizing contrast between the two possible outcomes. Either Cooper died shortly after the jump, and that's where the story ends, or he pulled off one of the most legendary stunts of all time and actually got away with it. In science, there's a problem-solving principle known as Occam's razor, which suggests that the simplest explanation and the one that relies on the least amount of assumptions tends to be the right one. The simplest explanation for why Cooper has never been found or the money has never turned up is that he died soon after jumping out of the plane. He jumped out of the plane under some of the worst conditions imaginable. In order to survive, not only would he have needed a substantial amount of training, he would have needed even more luck. The FBI doesn't believe he had much of either. Here's FBI agent Larry Carr, who was a lead investigator on the case. You know, you have D.B. Cooper walking down the stairs. Uh, As as soon as he's standing there, he really can't feel the wind coming around him from, from the plane going 200 miles an hour. Uh, and so when he jumps out of the aircraft, I think he just started tumbling right then. Just tumbling, uh, panics, uh, and once you panic, you know, you really can't do anything. So he's falling, he doesn't know where he's at, he can't see, uh, he has no visual reference on the ground, he's out of control in the air, and uh, starts to panic, can't pull his chute, and hits the ground with never opening his chute. Carr would later say, We originally thought that Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, but we concluded after a few years that this simply was not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped into the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile power wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. Here are some other things to consider. He was given four parachutes supplied by a local Seattle skydiving school. Two of them were primary parachutes and two of them were secondary parachutes. The secondary parachute that he chose to jump with turned out to be non-functional. It was used for training and demonstration and it didn't have a functioning ripcord, so it couldn't be opened. It had clear markings to identify it as non-functional markings that an experienced jumper would have recognized. In the rush and chaos of trying to meet the ransom demands, it was accidentally included in the batch, and it went unnoticed by Cooper, who ripped the contents out of a functional parachute in order to place the money inside of it, and he left a third functional parachute behind. The FBI believes that even if he somehow managed to survive the jump, surviving in the mountains during a winter storm would have been impossible without the right equipment. Also, none of the money has ever turned up aside from the money that was found along the riverbank. So if the money was never spent, then Cooper did all of this for nothing. The FBI is good at what they do, but through all of their efforts, they've never made any real progress towards finding Cooper or the money. As the saying goes, law enforcement can make a million mistakes throughout their investigation, but if the suspect makes just one, it can all come to an end. And to think that in all the time after the hijacking, Cooper has never made a crucial mistake or told the wrong person, well, it's a little hard to believe. But it's exactly what I want to believe. And to be fair, the FBI has reasons for wanting to think or at least wanting the public to think that Cooper died. Till this day, this is the only unsolved hijacking in the United States history. 
Because Cooper has never been found, we can't outright say whether he lived or died, but there are a collection of details that suggest his survival was a real possibility. According to the FBI, the prevailing theory is that death was the most likely outcome because he was unprepared and lacked the training and knowledge necessary to survive the jump. But what stood out when researching this story was just how prepared and knowledgeable Cooper actually seemed to be. Take the timing, for instance. The hijacking took place on a Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. This probably wasn't random. This Wednesday was the beginning of a five-day weekend because of the holiday, which meant that it would have given Cooper Wednesday through Sunday to jump from a plane, trek through the wilderness, find a way home, and be back at work on Monday morning, all without his absence being noticed. The FBI searched for people who disappeared for a few days or who disappeared and never came back around the time of the hijacking, but couldn't connect any of the disappearances to the crime, which suggests that Cooper survived and returned to his normal life before his absence raised suspicion. And then there's the plane. He chose to hijack this specific model of the 727 because of the plane's engine placement. In the 1970s, engines were placed at the rear of the plane, but in this particular plane, they weren't. So he could safely parachute out of the back of it. In order to know this, he would have had to have specific knowledge of airplanes and also know what type of plane would be used on the flight from Portland to Seattle. Also, Cooper wanted the pilot to fly at a significantly reduced speed and altitude, which would have been impossible for most commercial planes in the 70s. They'd stall out and fall out of the sky. But this particular plane, through a recent and not so widely known innovation, had the ability to do exactly what Cooper wanted it to do giving him safer and more controlled parachuting conditions. It's also pretty clear the flight choice wasn't random. According to the flight attendant, Cooper recognized the city of Tacoma from the air, made comments about his familiarity with the landscape below, and he mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was about a 20-minute drive from the Seattle-Tacoma airport, something most people wouldn't know or even comment on. He knew where he was, and he was so familiar with the area that he could recognize landmarks from the sky suggesting that he'd spent significant time in the area or traveling above it, possibly through work in the military or airline industry. Skydiving experts say that if this was Cooper's first time jumping out of a plane, there's pretty much no chance he could have survived under these conditions. But if he had jumping experience, then the jump wouldn't be much of a problem. With all of his knowledge and preparation, it's reasonable to believe that he had experience with planes and possibly parachuting. Was he an expert? That's hard to say, but it doesn't sound like he was a novice. It's possible that he accumulated this knowledge during his preparations for the hijacking, but what's more likely is that it came naturally through his profession. Either way, his knowledge was displayed through his decision-making and goes against the theory that he was untrained. And while no amount of training and preparation could outright guarantee his survival under these circumstances, they would certainly give him a chance. Besides, If he died, what happened to his body? What happened to the money? Why weren't either of them ever found? If Cooper landed in the forest and never left, with all the man hours that have been put into searching, you gotta believe that something would have been found by now. In trying to uncover who Cooper was, the FBI started by trying to determine what type of background he would have had to have in order to even think about pulling something like this off. While publicly they reported he was an untrained daredevil desperately in need of money, most of the suspects they investigated either had a military background or worked with planes in some capacity. One such suspect was Kenneth Christensen. He lived in Bonnie, Lake Washington, two hours from the Portland airport. He'd been a paratrooper in the military. After his military career, he worked as a plane mechanic and later a chief flight attendant for the Northwest Orient Airlines, the same airline company that Cooper chose to hijack a plane from. 
One thing that always made people suspicious about Kenneth was that he didn't make much money as a chief flight attendant, but paid cash for a house and several acres of land less than a year after the hijacking. There are other details that support the possibility that Christensen and Cooper could be the same guy. He was a smoker, a drinker, loved bourbon, and was left-handed. Cooper smoked on the plane and drank bourbon and was also believed to be left-handed. After his death, Kenneth's family discovered that he'd left behind a valuable stamp collection, gold coins, and thousands of dollars spread across multiple bank accounts. But the most interesting thing they found was a folder filled with old newspaper clippings from each instant the Northwest Orient Airlines was mentioned in the newspaper. The dates show that he started collecting them shortly after he was hired and stopped collecting them just before the hijacking. Even though he continued to work for the airline company for years after the hijacking, and it was the most noteworthy event involving the airline company, he never saved a single clip about it. While the FBI acknowledges the coincidences, they contend that Kenneth was never considered a serious suspect because there is simply no evidence tying him to the crime. That's pretty much the case for all the suspects the FBI had in mind. Even the ones who came right out and confessed to the crime. This was one of the most popular unsolved mysteries of its time, so it wasn't uncommon for people to confess in hopes of receiving money for their story or just a little bit of notoriety as they exited the world. People like Jack Cofelt, who was a known con man with an extensive criminal background who confessed to being Cooper a year after the hijacking, attempting to sell a story to a production company. He looked similar to the sketches of Cooper. He was reportedly in Portland the day of the hijacking and even suffered a leg injury around the time of the hijacking. He says he got it during the landing. But the details given by Cofelt, who died in 1975, weren't consistent with some critical details that the hijacker would have known. There's also Dwayne Weber, who was in a Florida hospital dying of kidney disease when, for some reason, he told his wife of 17 years that he was D.B. Cooper. His wife remembers the sleep-talking nightmares where her husband would mumble about leaving fingerprints on the plane and his knee injury he told her he got from a hard parachute landing. The FBI looked into him and found nothing connecting him to the crime. And then there's Richard McCoy, nicknamed the real McCoy, who actually has a hijacking conviction under his belt. He was a Vietnam vet, former Green Beret helicopter pilot and avid skydiver who, in 1972, a year after the Cooper incident, hijacked a plane and parachuted to freedom with $500,000 in ransom money. He was caught three days later when asked whether or not he was Cooper. He declined to speak about the Cooper hijacking altogether. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison, but escaped two years later and died in a shootout with authorities, taking whatever information he had about the possibility of him being Cooper to his grave. In 2007, the FBI was able to extract DNA from the tie Cooper left on the plane, and with that DNA, they ruled out hundreds of suspects, including many suspects who'd previously confessed. But with the evidence being over 40 years old, investigators openly doubt its reliability. Even investigators within the FBI say that the testing has produced results that are mostly inconclusive, leaving us to wonder if any suspects, particularly those who've confessed to being Cooper, can legitimately be eliminated. At this point, with so much time having passed, Cooper will probably never be officially identified. Unofficially, the FBI has probably already come across his name, maybe through his own admission or by way of a bitter ex-wife who swears it was her no-good ex-husband. This wasn't the only hijacking that took place in the 1970s. It wasn't even the only hijacking that took place during that respective year. But it's still talked about today. Did he live? Did he die? Countless books, documentaries, and films have been created theorizing the identity and fate of a criminal. He hijacked a plane, threatened the lives of dozens of people, and jumped with $200,000 strapped to his chest. And yet his actions are celebrated, laughed about, even admired. 
No trace has ever been found. The question, did he make it? People in southern Washington like to think he did. For eight years now, many have gotten together to celebrate Cooper's anniversary. This weekend, they'll do it again. Out of respect for the man, they think beat the system. Sort of a legend. He's, you know, got away with his skyjacking, and he seemed to be just a simple person. You know, he wasn't an activist of any kind. He just, uh, I don't know, just people sort of like it. I believe he thoroughly got away with a whole ball of money, man. He, uh, he took right off with it, you know. Hard telling where he went from there, you know, but I believe thoroughly that he is alive and he's got the money. If you were to walk in tonight, what would you do? And you knew it was him. Probably shake his hand. <laughs> Buy him a beer. People familiar with the story don't hate D.B. Cooper. They don't care that what he did was illegal. The thought of him ending up dead or in prison is so unsatisfying. Most people actually want to believe he got away with it, and they continue to tell the story as if he did. But why? Maybe it's because he didn't actually hurt anyone. Maybe it's because what he did took a level of courage that we find amusing. Maybe it's because we're willing to overlook certain parts of a story as long as the story as a whole is wildly fascinating. Or maybe it's a lot simpler than that. Maybe we all fantasize from time to time about beating the system, becoming rich overnight. And hearing about someone who actually did it keeps that fantasy alive in us. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero.